I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. It is Tommy Moore! Robbie, Robbie, weekly. Little reverse pass, Hello and welcome to the 42 Rugby Weekly. This is our second of three podcasts this week. Murray Kinsella and Gary Doyle ran the rule over Ireland's team selection for the 42 members on Wednesday. And there will also be an immediate post-match reaction pod from Twickenham this weekend as well. Members.the42.e, €5 a month or €42 for the year. You'll get loads more than rugby podcasts as well, of course. There's the award-winning Football Family podcast with Paul Dollery. There's Gavin Cooney's Behind Behind the Lines podcast, the guest on which this week is Brian Curtis, editor-at-large of TheRinger.com, who you might have seen were purchased by Spotify last week for somewhere in the region of $200 million. So considering we seem to have controversially missed out on the Spotify gravy train, we'd love for you to sign up and support our own independent journalism for a fraction of that $200 million fee, members.the42. A warm welcome to all of our new members, lots of new names in the Rugby WhatsApp group, and we'll do our best to get around to all of your questions throughout today's show. Answering those questions will be Murray Kinsella of the 42.ie. How are you, Murray? Good, thanks. How are you? Uh, Excellent. Thank you very much. And also Andy Dunn, not of the 42.ie, but here. How are you, Andy? Very happy to be here, yeah. Ah, We're delighted that you uh, are here. Um, Gary Doyle had a piece yesterday, Murray, was it yesterday, Wednesday, Tuesday, I don't know, it sort of seems like uh, one big day this week as we count down towards Twickenham, where he outlined, I think, eight reasons why he believes Ireland will beat England this weekend. When I saw it in drafts in the back end of the site, like it was, you know, X reasons why Ireland will, will beat England, I thought... What have we done to this old school hack coming from newspapers <laughs> to an online publication and already doing listicles? But uh, some compelling arguments in there for sure from Gary. Are you as bullishly confident as he is that they'll go to Twickenham and win? Definitely not as as bullishly confident. Uh, really good piece. Well argued. Definitely made a really good case. Um, but there's obviously different ways to, to view it. I mean, you look from England's point of view, they'll be steeled by a, a strong performance against Scotland, though the conditions were really tough. And you tend to just write it off. I was, I was really impressed with how they bounced back to an awful day against France. Um, and they'll have been lifted by that. They're obviously on rocky ground post the World Cup final. Losing that is a huge psychological blow. It's hard to recover from it. There's the whole Saracens thing going on as well. So there's a lot in the background there. Um, and I definitely do agree that there's a vulnerability there. Um, but I'd be absolutely stunned if England didn't turn up against Ireland at home. The last time they played in a proper Six Nations fixture here, these two teams, Ireland pretty much humiliated them and, and took a grand slam. So there's a lot on the line there. Um, and yeah, we'll probably get into it. There's maybe deficiencies in the team. There's a key guy missing in Billy Vunapola. So um, Ireland will definitely see those reasons that that Gary Doyle himself wrote. I'm sure that that has been passed around the change room to boost the confidence a bit more. So <laughs> I'd say it's uh, on the dressing room walls and tweaking them, the home <laughs> yeah. dressing room. This lad Doyle is having a go. Um, Andy, where's your mind at well, uh, I, on I, Thursday? Out of curiosity, I didn't see the Gary Doyle piece. Is it, is it, is it a pump up of the Irish strengths or is it picking yeah. a few English weaknesses or both? Kind of both. Yeah, okay. I think the... Uh, the rocky ground phrase that Murray used is is pretty on the ball. Like it's it's definitely vulnerabilities in both sides. I think in the Irish side, it's a really just groping around a bit in the dark and just finding our way to 
some kind of cohesion and that actually showed really nicely at a couple of moments in the Welsh game I think for and that's really positive again for um, for most of the rugby public looking at that Welsh game and going over to England in a think in a traditional Irish mindset as underdogs which even though we probably don't like to admit it we thought we've maybe gone beyond that we can be comfortable as market leaders we're not, we're not and uh, we definitely it just for for whatever historical or sociological reasons i think we are more comfortable going to england as underdogs which means we're more dangerous and that psychological tack is a, is a big strength going there and i think that allied to billy vonapola being ruled out um, for me now, I will delve into it more, but for me, it would make us, in my mind, marginal. Yeah, efforts. it's a fantastic <laughs> yeah. position to be in, isn't it? Yeah. Because there's no, like, they've won the first two games. People are encouraged, enthusiastic. Um, I don't think there's been any criticism, really, of this team selection. Everyone understands they're going for that cohesion. Look, he, Andy Farrell can have a bit of silver. He can have a triple crown after his third game in charge. It would be remarkable. But even if they don't win, I don't think there's going to be a massive outcry. There'll be the usual... No intense disappointment after the final whistle people will be calling for everyone to be dropped but I think that'll wear away quite quickly this time and people will understand they're on a bit of a journey so they're in a nice position going away yeah England are a little bit vulnerable Ireland don't have a huge amount of pressure on them because they won both the whole games it'd be a very different story if Stuart Hogg potentially had touched that ball down yeah. or the Welsh had turned up a little bit more in the, in the second game I think it's interesting that we don't really know exactly what kind of quality either team is just yet yeah I don't think we know it about the whole championship. It's really strange. After this first two rounds, you usually have a sense of, of that pecking order. But with England, again, we don't know because they were so poor against France. Then they kind of recovered against Scotland, but it was hard to read with those conditions. Ireland like just got over the line against Scotland with that hog error. And then Wales were poor enough. Well, I asked you about that last week yeah. and you did feel as though it was Ireland. And Birch made the point as well that it was Ireland who had sort of prevented them from playing. But I, on, the, on the members' pod during the week, you seem to have... I, I watched it again and I, I probably... And I was watching with that eye on it, how poor were Wales here? Um, and trying to have that question in my mind. And I, I did feel that they weren't watching again. It was a third watch, really. But the collisions, they didn't really turn up for those. They did defend poorly. They missed Jonathan Davies and how narrow they got, how their communication looked really poor. Um, and they didn't really get a stranglehold at all in the game. They were always kind of chasing. Now, having said that, if Parks had finished that try, it would have been obviously very different. So the, the fine margins do apply, but... I just think it's interesting that we don't quite have a really good grasp of where the two teams' quality are just yet. It's interesting, Andy, that like the point you were making before Murray was speaking there is almost that Ireland are favourites because they're underdogs in a way. Yeah. Which is, which is a complete contradiction. <laughs> it's a complete contradiction of, of, of which I'm sure I make will make many more. But um, yeah, I, I had that sense actually in... Um, couple of previous English games um, in the lead up um, I'm in 2018 I'm not sure I can't, actually can't remember were we the we weren't the bookies favourite to win that grand, I, it was the grand I don't think we were the bookies favourite I don't remember what the odds were now mm. but um, I got, certainly had a sense that week that we were going to do a job but um, yeah the performance uh, for, for a kind of a stylist flake that I, that I am when I see you know the type of rugby that warms the heart as opposed to is very grim and effective. I Farrell's in that really nice area and it's not gonna obviously last too long. I think the the public would accept a really strong performance 
actually in, in Twickenham, regardless of result. What constitutes a strong performance? So, I mean, do you mean a strong performance in that we still see elements of change that we saw against I, Wales? Exactly. I think that that continuation of uh, the style or the, the evolution of, of the style we're playing, you definitely see changes in that in the Welsh game from that were distinctly different to the the vast majority of 2019 and uh, so yeah I think that was and, and I definitely got a sense in the ground the, 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 there was a lot of momentum the crowd were, were behind there was a lot of noise when those three or four moments happened where people were it's a bit like not being being sound very sarcastic but when the Irish soccer team have played poorly for a couple of years and three or four passes get strung together and the crowd rise to their feet. It's like, you know, it shouldn't be the case. One or two passes, usually. You know, yeah, yeah uh, it shouldn't be the case. We should be, be more used to seeing that more regularly. But I think it, our, our style of rugby had become so truncated um, that now any kind of uh, width and any kind of offload play or attacking space or line breaks, the crowd really rose to that and the players rose to it. And I think that's... A, a continuation of that in Twickenham alone would be another positive step, but I think actually they might sneak one one step further and actually get the result. It's interesting as well to listen to some of the noise coming out of the England camp this week, Murray, where you've George Ford referring to that 2018 game and the possibility that England will sort of use that as motivation and in order to seek revenge for what happened in 2018. But like, if there is a team looking for revenge here. Surely it's the team who got yeah. two absolute trimmings in the two most recent meetings. Yeah, myself and Gary were talking about this yesterday on the, the members pod. How about, it just shows how teams will grasp onto anything just to have that motivational kind of carrot. Um, and definitely there is validity to both of those things and setting yourself up to prove people wrong. And, and obviously that stings for Ireland. That, that was real humiliation as well for them in Twickenham in that World Cup warm-up match. Uh, it probably points again to the, the same big issue in this fixture being Ireland dealing with, coping with, even thriving against England's power. I know Billy Vunapola is going to be missing, as is Mako, but like you look at some of the power athletes they have, Manu Tuilagi is expected to come back into the starting team. He loves playing against Ireland, has a brilliant record. What is it, five against five? Five wins out of five. Um, it's so difficult to stop on first phase off those line-out scrums. Maratoje was a wrecking ball in Scotland in the last game, as was Sam Underhill. He was absolutely battering people. I know Tom Curry, we may get to that at him at eight, um, and whether he is a number eight, but he's an incredibly powerful athlete as well. So they have all these guys, the list goes on. Um, and that's the, kind of the challenge for Ireland because last time, those last two times, I, I guess, really in, in 2019 in Dublin, and then that World Cup World match, they didn't deal with that. They didn't handle it, particularly early in the game. Um, and then they're kind of reeling and, and trying to catch up the the fixture in Dublin is a, is a fine example of that even the first line out play two laggy batters up the middle over the top of the line out Ireland just weren't alert aware um, and then they kind of just failed to cope from there as well as bringing England bringing that really clever kicking game where they exploited Robbie Henshaw at fullback and and went to town on that really really intelligent tailored game plan so I guess the challenge is for Ireland to match that physicality even better if they can um, and then bring their own clever tactical tweaks and tailor their plan to it like George Furbank hasn't really been tested bizarrely Scotland didn't go after him even just get a couple of high balls on him a couple of low grubbers on the ground you saw England do it to Stuart Hogg and he made the error for the crucial try Scotland didn't have the 
smarts, I guess, to do that. George Furbank looked shaky enough in, in Paris and obviously made a couple of big errors. So those little bits on top of that physicality, I think, will be will fascinating for, for, for Ireland's point of view, as well as hopefully that continued attacking development. Mm. Yeah, Furbank will come under an aerial assault, one would imagine, particularly early on. I, it will be probably similar to 2018, where Ringrose's first try is as a result of, yeah. was it Watson they were playing 15 that yeah, day? Yeah. Um, there are so many questions in the WhatsApp group about England, actually, in, in reference to England's strengths and where they might seek to exploit Ireland. So you mentioned him there, Manu Tulangi, and this will be the first question from the group. It's from Carl Fitz. And it's a straightforward question, but I don't know if there's an answer to it, Andy. And it's how do you stop Manu Tulangi? <laughs> um, I, when I, I played with Mel Dean um, over in Queens, who was very, uh, he was small in height, but very muscular. He was built like a brick shithouse, as they say. But he, he kind of coached me. I, at that stage, I was playing against Henry Tulangi. <sighs> who is possibly the biggest human you. that has ever existed. And he would come off the base of the scrum at number eight. Uh, I, like, he kind of still haunts my dreams. Uh, but Mel's, Mel had this brilliant way of turning a phrase. He would just say, just fucking stick on him like a piece of chewing gum. He would just, that was his, because your man would literally batter me in, into next week. I'd roll backwards and tumble he said none of that matters if you stick onto him like you're gonna tumble you're in it's like being in a tumble driver if you don't let go you will stop his momentum and someone else is gonna come in so it's about inhibiting hit so i you know i don't think ireland will uh, they mightn't look to dominate him in a one-on-one -on -one collision but they might need the chewing gum tactic and the second hit you know um and i think that's that's probably as best as you can do with him. Did you see the photo of Henry Tuolagi? Was it last year when the Tuolagis all Yeah, up? yeah. And Manu looks really small. <laughs> it's bizarre. Oh, man, like, I, I, thought it was, I thought it was photoshopped, the size of him, the width of his shoulders. No, it's... Uh, I broke into a sweat. I can. I did. I remember that photo. I swear to God, like, he, he, haunt, he haunt my dreams, that man. Him <laughs> and Shabal were playing... Not, were both... Shabal was playing eight for sale at that stage in the Premiership. Henry yeah. Tuolangi was playing for Leicester. Delalio was playing for Wasps. Corey was playing for Leicester. So I have the, I have the broken bones to show for all that. Shabal and Tuolangi, it, oh, it's like uh, Santa Claus and the holiday armadillo if they're in the same room for too long. <laughs> the universe will implode. Well, yeah, I don't know. What do you think about in terms of how do you stop Manu? You're, I mean... Yeah, well, you look to try and not let him have the, for example, that platform he had in that first carry in last year's Six Nations where he gets a, a prime ball over the top. Obviously, it's it's tricky to stop that, but you can be a bit more alert, I think, in closing down that space. Go after the line out in the air. Don't allow it to be clean every time. Scrappy, even if they're winning ball off the top of the line out, it's scrappy, so he's stuttering his run. And then I agree, it's I think it's a it's generally a two-man job. It's interesting with some of the bigger carriers, like often going really low around their legs, you think that's the most sensible thing, but because they've got such powerful knees and the stride is so powerful, you can blow you straight away and you end up tumbling backwards. So sometimes, mm. like Johnny Sexton does it well, it looks like a really? missed tackle. He'll stop them, he'll slow them up top, he'll target the ball so they're now worrying about their ball security and then someone can come in and, and smack the legs out from underneath them. Farrell does, Farrell and Sexton defend very similarly. Like they accelerate into that last second, of millisecond of contact, which almost startles the... the mm the on-running attacker. It's like they just get this stun punch. It's like a, everyone's upright for a second. It's like Lioness's pack hunting. Yeah, you know, yeah. One will take 
one it, will sort of make the initial yeah, or this, this interaction. Kind of and then, stun, yeah, this stun on impact. Everything stops and then there's a grapple for the ball. And then I, I think, yeah, it's an interesting way to look at it. You, you obviously need huge physical upper body presence as well. Then similarly, like to, to yeah. Lang, he's got both. I think Aki and Henshaw are, are almost best suited to it in terms of an Irish centre partnership. It's obviously what... Well, they kind of had to go with this weekend, the, the two frontliners with Ringrose injured, but I think they'll in, enjoy that challenge of it. The other tricky part of it is, which really affected Ireland in the World Cup warm-up game, for example, is how well England can use him as a decoy. You have to respect his his front door option. Mm. You know, if he's that short option, there's someone at the back. You really have to worry about Manu Tuolagi there because if he gets the ball moving at that kind of speed, he's going to absolutely batter through any kind of late arm tackles. So it's really tricky kind of making those decisions around him for, for the centres. And Ireland got that badly wrong in Twickenham the last day in, in, in August or whatever it was. Especially on the interior of the defence, there wasn't <laughs> enough hustle there. So you're left really in those kind of one-on-one decisions where you've got to mark up the backdoor option or really worry about two laggy. There's not that inside support hunting across. So they've got to work really hard off that set piece initially. And then I think Henshaw and, and Mackie, look, they're they're well capable of tackling a guy like Tuolaghi. Yeah. They're both physical Guys, they're both good decision makers as well. I sometimes wonder, and <clears throat> it was it's a bit amateur error, like the under-16s, the big kid, but <clears throat> you'd occasionally see a back rower coming out of the line-out and just marking up the big dude. You know, you don't see it a whole lot at professional level because it's probably a slight on the, the players in situ and they're like, no, I can handle myself, you're okay. But it might be an option. I mean, if he, if he becomes so destructive at some point that you take the likes of a stander out of, of a line or something like that and you just try and man-mark him but you don't tend to see it a lot. Yeah. Joe Worsley did it one time, didn't he? Was yeah. It, I think Shabal? I, I think I think it was, yeah. I remember man-marking. I remember man I don't know who's man-marking but yeah, you see it happen. Courses for courses, you know, just try and send a bigger, bigger man out there and see. A question from Owen then in the group and he says, England attacked our aerial game last year and rinsed us twice. What specific weaknesses in the Irish team are they likely to target this time, considering they're not likely to get the same amount of change out of targeting the air again? Or will they get the same amount of change if they target the air again? Yeah, again, you like Ireland did learn pretty quickly from that lesson. They were so frustrated with how it happened. Like, it's interesting that whole dynamic now, because you're seeing a couple of penalties now for the escorting, for the well, blocking, essentially. Scotland obviously got stung by it a couple of times. Um, Andrew Conway won a couple of those back. Um, so that area of the game is is tricky at the moment. In terms of England um, looking to exploit the Irish weaknesses, I think they'll probably like defensively try and put that huge pressure on Ireland as they try potentially to play to the width. Like that's the challenge for Ireland is is finding the right time to do it. You obviously want to play more expansively. You want to use your forwards' ball handling skills a bit more. Get the width in your play, but. You don't want to get caught between two stones where you're not getting that directness as well. You've seen it happen with Munster a few times this season where they've almost forgotten about going direct and, and allowing that to do the hard work for them early in their attacking sets. So I think England will probably look to put some pressure on their developing attacking play in that sense. Eric Fitzgerald has a question uh, about the Vunapola brothers. And he asks, given that the stats appear to suggest that the presence of both Bunapolas <clears throat> is key to England's success, what is it uh, that makes them both so pivotal in a sort of a non-statistical sense, I guess, uh, based on an eye test? Well, I think Billy, uh, to start with, is more pivotal than Mako. Very much more pivotal. Um, 
he in along the lines of Tulangi is is close to physically unstoppable, you know, given his his general girth. He's uh he's pretty fast. I think his probably his most underrated part of his game to me is his passing. He like he regularly goes in nine off a line out and throws thirty yard balls off his left hand and it's a bullet. Um and when you've got that in your in your toolbox as an eight, when you can carry the way he does, he he's going to attract defenders so significantly they they have to stick on the turf and they have to brace themselves for impact and he can still decide to swing a wide ball having attracted everyone in so close and it's so fundamentally difficult to combat that that's why he's so effective because he can do both things so um with, with such ease it seems um and then with such great difficulty to, to defend that. That's, for me, the crux of his game. Um, Mako is... Similar-ish, he can, he can pass, he can play as well. Yeah, yeah, he's... I, I wouldn't... I don't I don't think he's necessarily, if you, if you think about hardened international scrummaging props, I don't think they're fearing him in no. any way. So I don't, I don't think he has... If you're talking about the roles and responsibilities of a prop and the roles and responsibilities of an eight... Billy's doing everything you'd want from an eight and more. Mako's doing probably half of what you want from a prop brilliantly and the other half, the scrummaging side, still a few question marks. So their influence to me is more, uh, it's more a Billy, Billy's the bigger loss for them. Mako, yeah, I think he's a bit underrated as um, maybe a standard set or a leader in the group. He's, he's not supposed to be the most outspoken guy, but even you watch him on the pitch, I feel he's a little bit similar to Tyke Furlong in the, unbelievable work rate yeah. he has you've seen him go the full 80 which is, yeah. like Tarek Furlong is freakish for a prop but his ability to move around the pitch at high speed and get back in defence those kind of things <clears> are massive yeah. I don't think the other loose heads I, like Joe Marler doesn't have that you saw no. it in the World Cup final was a Colby's try where he's just out on his feet and yeah. can't catch up I think Vunapolo would have made a better fist at that although catching Colby in that kind of form was, was difficult he's incredible at getting up and down the pitch his some engine on him I think he passed pretty well. Yeah, the the World Cup final. I think Eddie Jones had regrets about not starting Marder because yeah. of the scrum. Yeah, um, now it was a pretty fearsome uh, so Springbok. Yeah, Springbok pack. But yeah, they are. They're they're losses. It, Ellis Gens seems to be emerging now. Mm. Obviously, a bit of a the Rhino. No, yeah, the Rhino. He's very aggressive character, but he seems to have channeled it in the right way. He's an interesting character. Very interesting. I like all his interviews and stuff. Yeah. They've got some real characters in that yeah. English front row. They really do, yeah. yeah. It's brilliant to see, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, it is refreshing. It's homogenized it is. world. Yeah, yeah. And it, Mako Vunipola is also, how old does he look? Yeah. <laughs> he looks in his 50s every time I look yeah. at him. I can't he's only 29. He's, 20, he's in his 20s. It's, yeah. yeah. Uh, in relation to, particularly Mako then, Colm has a question, which is <clears> just how do you think uh, Ireland's set piece will hold up? Uh, who, sorry, who should and who will have the upper hand in the scrum and also at line-out time, Murray. Well, Jakob Aper decides to scrum this weekend, <laughs> so I think everyone's on edge about that. The Welsh stuff obviously was really interesting with Tyke Furlong earlier this week. Uh, Jonathan Humphreys kind of coming out of nowhere very late after the match and having a, a, a go at Tyke Furlong scrummaging, which, like Andy Farrell said yesterday, I haven't heard before. I've never really heard him criticised. He always looks pretty legal to me and... If anything, watching that game, the Welsh were like they were lucky with the first penalty where Furlong gets done for for going in the angle. I thought it was actually um, Win Jones who 
who drove in from the kind of left-hand side. That is going to be a, a massive part of it. And I'd say both parties are nervy about paper. He has a... What's his beef? Paper. Yeah, I mean... He can be a little bit inconsistent. A, yeah. yeah, I think... Like, Ireland have definitely had a couple of issues with him in the past. Like, everyone, like, listen, you take it out of the referee's hands. I think Ireland's scrummaging is pretty solid. Everyone's cheating, really, at scrum time, aren't yeah, they? Yeah. You're looking for those little advantages. I think Ireland have probably loosened a little bit in that sense where before it was just about getting the ball back. Now I think mm. they're keen to be more dominant. But the English scrum has been really good. They've 95% returned their own feet and they've won five penalties, um, which obviously post the World Cup is, is really encouraging for them. Matt Proudfoot, the Springboks forwards coach, He's obviously now with England. Eddie Jones went for the, the quick, quickest and easiest solution straight after the World Cup. He, he went and recruited the, the Springboks forwards guys. So they're in pretty good nick. And yeah, I think yeah. with Marler potentially starting, they'll be even stronger at scrum time. So that's a bit of a, a kind of key focus area for Ireland. There's, there's always this wonderful moment before a game in the changing rooms where the refs come in and talk to the front rows and they do it with both <laughs> sides. And it's it's hilarious. It's the ref typically like each one each ref has his own little script and I'll be looking out for this and I'll be looking out for that and all these giants are huddled in over this little ref who's telling them what he's looking out for on the day. And I don't believe anyone ever actually listens <laughs> to what that script is. They yeah. just continue with their own plan and just try and get away with it and probably a few sound bites back to him. I remember um, Simon Keogh, he's now the, the CEO of the Irish Rugby Players Association, had this really uh, funny and clever clever way. He would, he would interrupt the ref just as he was about to start that script with the front rows and would tell him we've studied videos of how you scrummage how you referee the scrummage and we really like it and that you could see the referee's chest kind of puff up and go these guys and we do it every week I'm sure it only lasted a few weeks until, <laughs> you know on the ref circuit they were like watch out for Kel <laughs> he's a charmer but like you could see them kind of puff their chest and go this guy likes the way I scrummage because it's a completely murky world for the ref it has to be so um, it'll be interesting, yeah. The, I think there's been a bit of controversy around Piper, you know, but yeah, I, I think Furlong will probably get the upper hand, I think, for that first 60 minutes. But uh, the Irish scrum, is it as strong when we, ma when we make that change, you know, a tight head and who's yeah. the next best tight head? It's obviously, it's been Porter. There's been arguments, is Ryan a better scrummaging, uh, you know, prop and there's all this going on as well so but yeah I, I think Furlong certainly will get the upper hand in that initial yeah the line out's going to be interesting as well and particularly the mall because again Ireland improved in that area against Wales really good mall defence on two occasions like five metres out they're massive moments for a pack um, Steve Worthberg is leaving after the, the Six Nations from, from England who's been really influential for them but he's still there at the moment and, and that'll be a fascinating battle as well. Peter Manny obviously retaining his place gives you that real defensive strength. Ian Henderson has already stolen two lineups. I think he, no one else has more lineups than him in the Six Nations. Um, and James Ryan's improved in that area as well. So you'd love to see Ireland go after them in the air, even though they've got brilliant, the English have got brilliant jumpers and, and Jamie George's throw is exceptional. Like He's a brilliant player, keeping a, another brilliant player on the bench in Luke Dickey. So that's going to be a really fascinating part of it as well. Is Tom Curry a number eight then? You touched upon it at the start of the show. Or is this a kind of a vanity project by Eddie Jones where he's just <laughs> trying to do something different because he's bored? <laughs> he's a massive fan of Tom Curry anyway. I, I don't think he's a number eight yet, but I can definitely see him adapting to that role. Eddie Jones is either ahead of the curve here. 
and he's getting a, a different style of number eight, or maybe going back to a style of number eight. He, he referenced Rodney Sayala um, for the All Blacks before who moved from flanker to number eight. Tom Curry is an unbelievable rugby player. He's only 21, so he's going to get better and better. Mm. Incredible physical specimen, like remarkable if you think about how explosive he is. He's got great ball handling skills. You saw in the first game against France, there were, co- there were two instances where he miscontrolled the ball and it was quite costly for them. One, one instance kind of, it gives the French a chance to smash Willie Hines off the back of the scrum when they're attacking five metres out. But it got better in the second game against Scotland. And I don't... Like, obviously, you'd rather have Billy Vunapola at number eight because he can do what he can do. But I don't really see the other options. Like, Don Brand obviously is getting a lot of headlines, load of big plays. It's very different when you step up to another level when there aren't as many, we- not weak defenders, but when everyone is a really good defender and you don't get those opportunities to, to break an open play. Um, so I can kind of understand where he's going with it. And if it allows him to get Underhill and him and then one, o- one of the other really good back rows they have into the team. It kind of makes sense while Vunapola is injured. I would be shocked if it continues when Vunapola is available again. He's only, what, 27, mm. is he? So he's many years left if you can sort out that arm. Um, but yeah, my short answer would be he's not a number eight, but he's a brilliant back row. And there is not a huge amount, aside from that control at the base of the scrum, that really changes for him. He's still winning jackal turnovers. He's got his, exactly the same role in, in any line and mall involvements, really. Um, and he can also carry brilliantly and, and roam out in those 15-metre channels and play ball. So I wouldn't be writing off just yet. I would wonder, would, <clears throat> would Eddie Jones have made a, a different selection and plumped for a specialist eight against different opposition? Mm-hmm. Because I think he's made the selection because he needs workhorses against the Irish back row because he knows what he's going to get against Sander and van der Fleer. He's going to get constant challenges at every breakdown. And he, if he wasn't playing against Stander and, and van der Fleer, I wonder would he have maybe gone for a Don Brandt and Curry and Underhill as, as flankers. You know, I think he might be, he might be making a one-off selection by, by really picking a back row of three hybrid athletes as opposed to a clearly defined eight a clearly defined traditional open side and, and a clearly defined six. He's he's maybe going for that three incredible athletic workhorses to try and combat specifically Stander and, and mm. van der Fleer, whereas against Italy or France on a different day without Vunipol, I think he might have done like for like and put in a, a specialist eight maybe. Yeah, it's a fascinating mm. debate for Roby really as well because... Like, obviously, every every position is specialist in a way, but there's a lot of kind of blurring of lines, really. Even with centres now, most of them can play 12 or 13. You think of flankers where the roles are often very similar and those lines are kind of being blurred as well. So Jones clearly thinks this is a different way to go with it. And he is yeah. a... Like, he is a progressive thinker. He, he's not afraid of really shaking things up because he understands that the game shifts so rapidly. And to be fair, most of the time he's managed to stick with the game and he's had continued success over a long well, time. Well, he's from, uh, Eddie Jones from Randwick uh, originally and I think that is also the home, maybe the home club of Bob Dwyer, yeah. who was an Australian he's legend. M- his mentor, essentially. And, and Bob Dwyer coached the um, World Cup team in 91, the Aussie team. And one of the key, uh, cor- one of the cornerstones of the success of that World Cup winning team was Tim Horn and Jason Little in the centre. And Bob Dwyer would describe it as saying he had five back rowers on the field. He had three back rowers and two guys in the centre who were, who were really changing the prototype for what centre play was. They were suddenly competing at 
tackles to you know to win the ball they were the first people to do that and i think actually 30 years later what's there's a small flip or subtle subtle flip as you you would look at teams started looking and saying we've three back rowers and we've two centers in the midfield who play like back rowers now i think you've got two centers in midfield and three back rowers who can play more like centers if you know what mm. i mean there's do, in terms of the athleticism and the profile of playing center and back row now they're very similar in physique a lot of them so you you do have that hybrid mix you've got you know you've got five guys on the field that are very hard to just you know distinguish apart whereas you can definitely spot the front rowers the second rowers the nines tens and usually the wingers maybe you know certainly in the irish side you can from physique from a distance but you've got this middle ground now and in a lot of rugby sides or your you know your midfield is is indistinguishable from your flanker to your 13 and yeah it's really i mean i think it's a really positive um evolution of the game you know yeah you like you kind of made the point when we were talking about back row, what before? I can't remember when it was. We we're in standard about you have to have everything to your game now. I mean, he actually has passed the ball seven times. I think he, he has. He, yeah, he's he's keen to push that side of his game. But then you look at something like before the championship, no player had more jackal turnovers than Bundyaki in Irish rugby mm. in in the squad at, at the breakdown. He had ten of them over the course of the season. So he's bringing that skill, which traditionally would have been de- defined as a back row skill. People like. The Aussies you mentioned there, Brian O'Driscoll obviously changed yeah, that exactly. completely. And there is an expectation to to play across the skill set. I think Justin Tibrick would be an unbelievable centre. Like Fallatow mm. would be brilliant at 13. Yeah. Kieran Reid would have been the same. So there is that interesting blurring of the lines. And Eddie Jones feels like he's ahead of the curve with this one. So we'll either be lauding his genius he may well be, after yeah. this weekend or we'll be laughing at him because there was a miscontrolled ball at the back of the scrum and Conor Murray picked it up and scored a try. Yeah. It's true. He's not afraid to be wrong, in fairness to Jones. Yeah. Uh, he tends to yeah. just take a chance and go with it. And, uh, you know, there's no harm in that sometimes, particularly when it pays off. In relation to the back row, um, we kind of touched upon it last week, Murray, but just given that Stander has been the guy who has provided most of the jackal turnovers in Ireland's back row over the course of the first two games, like he should have had four really against Wales. There was one that he was paying for, but it seemed harsh uh, yeah, to my, my naked actually, eye anyway. I've heard since that the referee feedback was that the penalty before the one where his yellow card was completely wrong. He should have actually been rewarded and then therefore the yellow card was wrong. Exactly. So yeah, I yeah. think Ireland were frustrated about that but they didn't make a, a big song dance because they'd won. Yeah, yeah, well there's no there's no need to I suppose uh, after a victory but just in, in terms of his being the standout poacher really um, in, those, in those first two games like as much as Van der Fleer and Omani have been playing very well um, is there a case to be made for sort of needing more of that from them. Like, I know they're offering a lot more than just those sort of big moments that gets everybody in, in, in the pub up on their feet, for example. But like, England are going to go after standard like more so than Scotland and Wales did. And just that, is there a danger basically if you negate standards turnover threat at the moment that maybe we don't have as much of a, a jackal threat? Or is yeah. it a case as well that if you go look back at the championship last year, that maybe Ireland won't necessarily commit so much uh, this weekend? Yeah, well, I think there's been a change in philosophy, definitely. The, the last two years under Joe Schmidt, I, I don't know if it's him or Farrell, but there was a clear move away from being at every breakdown. They wanted defenders on their feet. They wanted more of that line speed. You saw them being much more selective. I feel like they're attacking it more. To be fair to Josh van der Fleer, he was a he had a brilliant jackling performance against Scotland. He had two turnovers, mm. should have had another two, a couple of penalties for 
like clear side entries um, and slowed the ball in a number of occasions. Didn't quite get as many chances against Wales, but what they're doing is is working really well as a back row. I'm thinking of one of CJ Sanders his turnovers against Wales where Piero Manny makes a really good low chop tackle he falls into the kind of clear out lane and, and r- lies there for a couple of seconds obviously making it really difficult for him to get a good hit and Van der Fleer is kind of anchoring onto CJ Sander giving him a bit of stability when he's essentially off his feet leaning his weight over the breakdown waiting for the clear out to, to push him back onto his feet I think they're actually working really well around the breakdown and Sander's being the one to benefit on several occasions from other guys leaving in good positions. Obviously, he deserves credit. He can stick in the fight like no one else and take massive blows to kind of upper back and uh, neck region. So I actually think it's working pretty well as a, as a trio. The temptation, I think, for Farrell this weekend would have been to get Caelan Doris back in because you feel like he's got a, a much better ball-carrying quality, than certainly than Peter Omani and, and better than Van der Fleer as well. Omani, like, he doesn't give you that anymore. I think he's been playing well, but he's had, what, six carries, I think, and none of them particularly impactful. He's obviously been out in, in the kind of 15-metre channel when they're playing that that shape they use to, to get with. So he's not being relied on as that carrier. His job is to do different things. Um, but I think against that English power, there would have been a temptation. Do we add in Caelan Doris, who gets a, a real punch in the carry? I know there's that thought that, OK, we don't really know how he's going to turn up against England and Twickenham, but... I think they know, having started in the first game, that he's got a big personality. He probably would thrive in that. Um, and that will be important off the bench, I think. His ability to give a kind of dynamic change up, I guess, and, and be that that physical carrier. So I think they've gone with the balance that's worked. But I I really think there was massive consideration given to to getting Doris back in there for the carry. I reckon he'll, he'll be a very... He's a very purposeful uh, reserve selection in the sense I'd be... I'd say they have... A mindset to give him 30 minutes you know yeah. 35 you know you see sometimes you see these really odd substitutions like three minutes after half time or you know I'm not sure why that's done but I'd say he could be coming into the fray by minute 50 at the latest you yeah. know and to be fair he's not just a carry he can jackal as well he's what is he he's over six foot four but he's brilliant yeah. at getting over the ball I think he'd won about six or seven before the Six Nations so he has that as well and, and passing skill as well He's an interesting case in that what you said there, they probably would have been um, under no illusions as to his being ready to play in Twickenham. Even though we had hypothesized on the podcast and loads of other media outlets and fans even were probably saying like, ah, it might be a game too soon for him in that he only had a few minutes against Scotland. Like a few weeks ago, a few months ago, we were talking about it's time to actually start blooding these young players and giving them their opportunities and whatnot. And like, if you look at the opposition Tom Curry is 21 and he's playing number eight against yeah. Ireland. You know what I mean? So I do think had Curry, or sorry, not Curry, had uh, Doris not gotten his injury like that, he probably would be starting for this game anyway. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah, I'd agree with you as well, Andy, that like, I'd say he'll actually have a massive role to play in this game. I don't think he's there just to sort of finish off the last 10 minutes or mm. Ireland are trailing by a point. We need a bit of punch off the bench. Like mm. I think he'll actually be he could yeah. be fairly pivotal, actually, because yeah. half an hour is a long time. Anyway. And I don't think it's beyond the realms of hospitality that he end up starting in that last match against France. He'll mm. almost certainly get a start against Italy and then gets another chance to prove himself there. And then maybe you'd assess your kind of composition in the back row. But it's a good position to have. CJ Sander was interesting on it yesterday. He was asked, you know, did it give you a kick up the hole? Which we had talked about it having done for Omani, clearly, and Stander. And he kind of goes, no, not really. And then he goes, well, actually, maybe subconsciously it kickstarts you. You're trying to play your best, obviously. But when something like that happens, a new player in the pool of back rows, 
it does give you a little kickstart. Like Peter Manny got dropped having been the vice captain at the World Cup. It's a kind of stark reminder. Even though we're talking about making wholesale changes, something as small as that can can make a difference. And I think you're seeing it with both Manny and Stander. Uh, a question here from Shane, and it's a little bit of a different type of question, but an interesting one, I thought. And uh, if you bear with me while I read it out, because it is reasonably long, but it won't take long. Uh, what role do you think the media play in the performance of the Irish team? Uh, Andrew Conway hit the nail on the head in his recent interview saying that the media said the Irish team were the worst in the world after the win against Scotland, but they'll be the best in the world if they beat Wales, which obviously they did. And that's how the media are portraying the team now. We now live in a world where so many of the players, especially the younger ones, are on social media all the time. So surely the hyperbole from most corners of the media brackets, not all. So an olive branch for us there is having a growing impact on team performance and confidence. England seem to have a similar issue where they get to the top of the world, get pumped up by their domestic media only to fall at the next hurdle and then the media are asking for the head of the coach and whatnot. Uh, it feels like Ireland might be falling into the same trap. My first issue there is Andrew Conway. When I read the comments, I completely disagreed with him. I, I didn't... Like, I'm obviously well aware of what's going on across all the media and maybe one or two columns were up and down with Ireland after those two games. I think the general reaction was really level. Yeah, okay, they didn't play great against Scotland, good win. And then against Wales, that's encouraging. I I completely disagreed with Conway in that sense, but it is a very interesting, broader question there. Um, how much influence do the media have? Probably not as much as some people would like to think. <laughs> um, and certainly there are players who are getting better at phasing it out, but even just slightly beyond the media, I'd say the feedback they get on their social media has an impact on them. See, I, I think that is conflated as being the media. So do I. Where Conway so I. is concerned, but not just in rugby. Uh, like, I'll, I'll get it a lot in boxing. Oh, the media are saying this, the media are saying that. It's like, are you sure you're not talking about Twitter? Yeah. Because that's not, I mean, it is a medium, but it's yeah. not the media per se. And it's, and it's, it's a yeah. pit. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's not it's a, a soulless pit of depravity <laughs> and despair, but it's not quite the media. Yeah. Yeah. It needs We're, to be bombed. There's probably a broader <laughs> yeah. debate as well where Again, players are probably engaging with the one or two like articles of hyperbole where it's extreme. And that's why those articles and those maybe those journalists are so popular and well re- well paid because they get those kind of reactions. But I don't think that reflects the, the kind of broader side of it. But yeah, I, I think the the feedback that players get on their social media is, is a massive part of it. I know there's that debate in football as well. Even Kieran Donny coming out in a gas sense and talking about he feels the online forums should be shut down and people shouldn't be allowed mm. to use them. I thought it was brilliant to see Shane Long recently say, I deleted all my accounts. I, I deleted my Instagram, my oh. Twitter. I don't, I don't care. I don't want to know what people are saying because it's very, invariably ill-informed, even some of the stuff that we write in the media, you don't know exactly what's going on and it's extremely negative. So mm. that would be my advice to players. Like, I know there's a commercial side of it um, and it's very hard. Like we're all, we're all so eager to know what people are saying about us, but if your job is really to perform and and you value the opinion of those within your circle so so highly, then just don't really expose yourself to it. There is a commercial side to it, of course, but like Gary Ringrose isn't uploading some promo video for Dove. It's uh, somebody else is doing that on his behalf, you know. Yeah, so you can have yeah. an account and just not be on it. Well, that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah, that like if I was involved in pressure sports, that would be my advice to to the athletes, the the players, is like try and just avoid it because it is going to be negative. Like if you make a mistake, someone, some asshole is going to tweet you Mm. and say like, you idiot, you dropped the ball there, you're the worst Scotland captain ever or whatever it is. Mm. And that affects you. I know know from like negative feedback on say an article, it does stick in your mind way more than 
so like five people saying, oh, well done, good job you yeah. did there. So, yeah, I think it was interesting yesterday. You know, some of the players say, oh, I haven't read it. And you go, you have, you know, you know what's been said. Keen Healy genuinely seemed not to be aware of the scrummaging stuff with, with Furlong. He's, he's like, I don't know. I can't really answer this question. He could have been playing dumb, but I kind of got the sense that he's realised that this is just going to affect me negatively. I'm better off phasing it out. Well, the interesting thing there is Keane Healy is roughly the same age as Shane Long. So I do think yeah. like lads in their 30s, maybe they've been around long enough where they're like, I actually don't need this. But maybe for some of the younger players, Conway's 28, 29, so I would have had him nearly in the uh, elder category. But like for people of Gary Ringrose's age, Joey Carberry, all these kind of guys in their early 20s, it's like it's become, it's been essentially a staple of their social lives while growing up so you're almost having to make a decision to just call a thing that's always been like an extension of your arm basically yeah um it might be easier for for some of the older guys like andy you would have just about missed out on maybe bebo you would have gotten some feedback on bebo or myspace <laughs> no love but uh yeah was anybody uh, sharing the love with you after uh, your performances <clears throat> no i i missed all of that and i'm so glad i did and i'm in a whatsapp group with uh, a lot of ex-players from, it's actually called the WABC, which is the Women's Auxiliary Balloon Corps. It stands for from a Blackadder episode where oh, yeah. um, <clears throat> in Blackadder, he, uh, Ron Atkinson says, I think to one of his, his team, you're about as useful in battle as the Women's Auxiliary Balloon Corps were. So the lads just, particularly in this WhatsApp group, were often on the... Uh, I suppose on the sidelines as subs and things, and and uh, there's a mutual, uh, a mutual sense we weren't that impactful in our professional careers, and so it's a funny group to be in. But I'd often see uh, comments the lads might make when they see something online about a player, and they go, "God, thank God we didn't have to go through that." And I, I'm very, I'm actually delighted I got through a professional career without social media. Um, it's in Shane's, is it Shane? Shane, <clears throat> I think in a broader sense, the I heard a conversation on um, <clears throat> on the media review on Off the Ball over the summer, where they were asking what would the in in sport, what would the or in in society, what were the seventies were remembered for something, the eighties remembered, the nineties, the what what was the last decade remembered for, um, and a suggestion was made. It was became it was the decade of polarization it was like there's no center anymore you can't sit with someone disagree and just disagree and stay in the room you've got to abuse them go you're wrong i'm right and you run off to the left i run off to the right and everyone just have a big pitch battle and throw grenades at each other and that polarization is manifests itself daily on on the likes of twitter and i think shane as you said it's <clears throat> he's might be mixing up responsible media reporting with with that polarization that we're seeing on social media mm. and that's where the the line becomes really blurred and difficult and I, I think there's been a lot of responsible media journalism about the Irish rugby team actually and yeah. I think it's been very fair and balanced and uh, and I disagree as well with uh, wholeheartedly actually with with what Andrew Conway said. I, yeah, well, I think I Shane, think, to be fair, was just paraphrasing <coughs> yeah, Conway yeah, rather yeah, than, yeah. Uh, you know, so... Yeah. Um, it's interesting that other people would say that Ireland rugby team got an easy ride, yeah. etc. I think that was after the World Cup. Then a lot of us got feedback from supporters saying, oh, you're being too harsh here, like <coughs> you're being heavy on Joe. It's kind of like, 
they did poorly at the World Cup. You gotta, yeah, yeah. you gotta go with what actually happened and, and be fair in your reporting, which I felt it was generally. Obviously, he's taking a bit of a battering, but just in terms of the influence, I think the coaches are probably more relevant. They seem like certainly Joe, for example. They seem to get far more aggrieved by what's written. They really take issue with people maybe misinterpreting in their eyes how they're trying to play or what they're trying to do. Like Joe Schmidt spent a lot of his, in my view, wasted a lot of his time like fretting over this, trying to settle a score with a little comment. Even in his book, there's a couple of them as well. And you're like, why are you bothering? You're like the golden cleric speech. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Now to the liars. (laughs) Now to the liars. Um, But I think it does. And Eddie Jones believes that it does have an effect on opposition coaches. He thinks, like clearly he gets it wrong often and possibly even more often, but he feels he can kind of influence opposition coaches. and, And Joe Schmidt was one of them. He said it before he felt... Uh, or Morgan Gatlin maybe said it as well where they could have a go at Ireland and, and it might slightly sway Ireland's thinking now I think Joe would say that was never the case but they all have little grievances over what's written the columns um, the influence that people and maybe the opinion that people take from those opinion columns so they're probably the ones who are very directly and clearly affected by it. I actually always thought Gatlin of all of them is is the most he's the he's the smart he uses the media the, in the smartest way, in my mind, he manipulates them. He'll throw in a soundbite. He'll throw in a grenade about an opposition coach, or he'll, you know, then I even, you know, when he wore the the red nose, the clown red nose to the press conference down in in New Zealand. Oh yeah. You know, he's he's always been able to steer his way through it and come out on top. And not many of them do that. And that's a that's a unique skill at that level. I remember I chatted to Stuart Lancaster. Um, over a beer about the England World Cup um, debacle, debacle that he was in, and he's he's incredibly uh, transparent, and he's really it's really refreshing to hear someone of his role being that <clears throat> transparent. But he thinks probably one of the one of the mistakes he made was in how he managed or mismanaged the media throughout that, and he feels that was a role it wasn't out of his professional scope or control to do it better. It wasn't like there was a big attack. I was a victim. He he said I didn't manipulate them or use them the right way. And that's something that I think he's probably learned. And when you look at the likes of Gatland, it's it's a real skill. Does he mean that he didn't kind of utilise all at his, at his disposal become a, nearly a media darling in advance of it where they would yeah. be more forgiving of the underperformance? Yeah, I think he he intimated that he didn't let them in enough. He shut them out and as a result, it grew horns and he figured on, on reflection, if I'd have let them in and built a relationship, it might have been different. Mm. He's, a, he's a good example of someone who overthought it as well mm. spent too much time yeah. worrying about what am I going to say what messaging am I giving out here the thing with Gatland is like having been around him on the Lions tour he, like obviously he cares what people say but he doesn't really care at the same yeah, time yeah, he's yeah. very relaxed about it Yeah, he, you know he's a relaxed guy he, he has a very good sense of life is important I think Andy Farrell comes across that way so far yeah. obviously it's going to be really interesting when they lose invariably they're going to lose at some stage and there's going to be a negative reaction probably It'll be interesting to see how he, he manages that. But he comes across at the moment as someone who 
has it in perspective. Listen, this is a bit of a sideshow to what I'm actually trying to do in my job. And that's a good way to treat it. Um, and probably for players as well. But it was a great question. Yeah, a super question. It's funny as well when you think about, uh, and I'm sure you would have heard similar, talking to former players, recently retired players. I remember one telling me that they used to read the player ratings on the 42 every week or every time it was applicable to them. And... Uh, one of them actually set up a kind of a fake account for the comments <laughs> section to argue with, argued their case in terms of uh, that they were better than a six on that given day and whatnot, you know. So. That's hilarious. Yeah. I also, there's also a story of one a, a prominent high profile coach uh, being seen going onto the 42 after a match, clicking into the match report, scanning straight past it and having a look at the comments. <laughs> so like... <laughs> Uh, everyone's everyone's interested in what people are saying about them. Oh, we need to close down that comment section. <laughs> it's surely time. Uh, so, gents, before we wrap up, um, there's one sort of uh, kind of tangential question, but I want to get to it because I think it's from a new member in the WhatsApp group, and I actually like the question. It's something that I've wondered myself a couple of times, and then we'll do very briefly predictions for the weekend. But this question is from uh, Richard Bonham, and he asks uh, Saracen's performance last weekend beating Sale with almost a C team shows that Mark McCall is a superb coach why is his name never really mentioned when big coaching jobs come up I'll go to you first Murray there um, it's a tricky one to answer I wonder is it kind of tied into the, the wider spread dislike or animosity towards Saracen's that has existed for many years now really and would probably magnify now, obviously, with what's happened and probably in some people's eyes tarnishes what, what McCall has done a little bit. Like He's obviously a, a brilliant coach, brilliant at creating that culture. Um, and I'm kind of giving his assistant coaches that freedom to actually do their jobs and coach. Um, it seems like a great environment. The players obviously love it as well. It's a very interesting one. I, I don't really know the answer. You'd have to speak to CEOs or people who who go out and, and recruit these guys to, to get a bit more depth on it. But yeah, I'm maybe I'm my impression that he, he's in a club that a lot of people have a kind of dislike towards. Um, and it is weird, like, especially with some of the Ulster coaches, like someone like Jeremy Davidson, who's done really good work consistently as well in France with Oriac, like a tiny club, but no budget. They were really good in Pro D2. And now he's got Breve back into the top 14. Um, and they're they're going fine, and he's a, a, clearly a, a great coach as well. But never really seems to be even thought of, or mm -hmm. people probably aren't even aware he's over there. He's never really got a, a look in. So it is interesting, maybe, and maybe that's part of it. I don't know. Well, I think he didn't. Um, he McCall built that. He manufactured that culture in Saracens. He, he built it like from brick to the next brick to the next brick. <clears throat> and I think he sees himself as so much woven into the fabric of who Saracens are that he, he wants to be maybe a legacy coach like Bill Belichick with the Patriots or something like that. That I'd say when his name is not, you know, thrown around when big jobs come up, it's partly because he's never put his head above the parapet mm. and said, I'm interested. Like there are... There are coaches who are complete media whores and they're like Jake White. Every time there's a coaching job, Jake <laughs> White's thrown his hat in the ring. You or know, his phone is ringing. You know, it's Sven Goran <laughs> Eriksson in the football world. There's these guys who are just 
sluts or coaches who just want to be anywhere, everywhere. If there's a job, put my head above where I'm in. And they're always linked with Nick Mallet was another one. You always heard of these names. They were the same three or four names. You, you never hear McCall's name because I think he doesn't court the publicity because he's woven himself into the fabric of what Saracens stand for. And I think he actually doesn't even want, you know, he's, he's probably on so much money as well. He's comfortable mm-hmm. that he doesn't need to look around for another job. And I think um, his relationship with the board level in Saracens was so strong given the success he delivered. He probably didn't want to rock the boat either. So I think that it's like it's multifactorial why he's not considered for other jobs in, in across the media. But I'd say he's really quite seriously considered under the radar by people who might appoint that position. But yeah. they won't talk about it. Like one of the things I'd, I'd say there as well is that there aren't too many jobs. Like there, there aren't too many ways in which McCall can actually upgrade from his current situation. You're talking about a top international job, which don't become available too often. No. And I wonder as well, though, is part of it like the fact that he's so entrenched in Saracens, as you say, Andy, and will probably go on to become a sort of a Belichick, Belichick type figure, particularly if they bounce back next year and whatnot. But is he maybe seen as just being a kind of a cog in a machine rather than the sort of mastermind behind it, if you know what I mean? Just because of the resources they've had at their disposal and because for so long it seemed to have been so well run and, you know, you had the owners that very hands-on in their investment and things like that, like that maybe he was just a guy, I don't know, what's your man's name? The Clapper, the, the former Cowboys head coach, where like they might get to the playoffs and whatnot, but it was nearly... In, the, the coach was nearly incidental if you know what I mean yeah. like I wonder is McCall actually underrated for the job that he has done oh he is I think he is yeah, yeah. he's, he, not, he's, he's no accident, he's no accidental hero he's just yeah. understated right yeah. Yeah. he'd yeah. see it that way that he's a cog he's like horrific at self-promotion he's mm. never does one-on-one interviews like hold the English journalist request all the time he's not interested in it he's interested in building a brilliant rugby team an interesting comparison I guess is Stuart Lancaster where he was head coach of England all the unbelievable pressure that came with that, didn't enjoy aspects of it. Clearly, the last part of it was was a nightmare for him. And now he's in this role in Leinster where he's just coaching. He's obviously does really good interviews from time to time, but he can be pick and choosing with them. He doesn't have to worry about all the contract stuff because Leo Cullen does that. And he's had loads of chances to go. He could have been involved in the Ireland coaching team if he had wanted and, and gone for it that way. He could have taken several head coaching jobs back in England with a bit more of that pressure and, and being that figurehead and doing the media stuff but he realised what he's got here is a really good thing it's got a lot of longevity in it got real security in it obviously he's working with brilliant foundations as as McCall is as well well not so much anymore they're a little bit rocky but yeah it's 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 almost being sensible about how you do it these are guys who essentially it's just a job and if you've got a good job that's going to last for many years to come in a world especially like rugby coaching where it's so it can be so, so short term and guys jumping around, you, you go, where do they go next? Or guys maybe going above their station too quickly. If you get a solid job, then you'd be a fool almost to leave it. So quickly, lads, starting with yourself, Murray. Predictions for Twickenham. I'm going to say England by three points. Uh, I think it'd be really close. But yeah, I just expect them to deliver something they haven't quite yet since the World Cup. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd expect Ireland to play well again, but I'll go with the home favouritism. Okay, Andy. I'm going to reverse that. I think uh, 22-19 to Ireland. So three-point win for Ireland. Nice one. That's uh, We're finishing on a high. I knew I could trust Andy there. That's why I went to you first. <laughs> yeah, I knew you too. Yeah. Oh, gents, thanks a million. 
Cheers. We'll catch you Cheers. soon. Best of luck over in London, Murray. And you will have a podcast, I believe, from over there for the 42 members. Members at the 42.ie if you want to sign up there for extra podcasts and all sorts of other good stuff. Uh, until the weekend, so have a great weekend and take it easy. I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. <laughs> <laughs> Robbie Robbie Weekly. Then in the first pass. And oh, 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 Magic! You're not alive, boys, so you start kicking when the room is spinning and the words are sticking.